Hello, and welcome to another episode of Keck CNC's podcast, Global Thinking. Today, we're talking about a topic that is high on the agenda of governments, corporates, and investors, the journey to net zero. The world has committed to a net zero path, setting ambitious goals for 2050 as part of the Paris Agreement. And while many companies have made bold commitments to change the way they do business, it's not often clear how they'll achieve their targets. I'm joined by Mark Campanale, founder and executive chairman of Carbon Tracker, a think tank focused on the impact that the energy transition is having on capital markets, and Oliver Buckley, senior consultant at Keck CNC and specialist advisor in our climate transition offer. So welcome both. Um, how are you doing? Good, thanks. Delighted to be with you. Great. Um, Very nice to meet you, Mark. Could you start um, by explaining a little bit about your background and your work? Yeah, thank you. So um, I trained as an environmental economist about 30 years ago, thinking I was going to be working on uh, aid and agricultural projects in Africa, which actually I did for about four years. And then I came back to the UK back into the 1980s and, and met a brilliant woman called Tessa Tennant, who was the first person to found an ecological investment fund in the city of London. She was investing in green enterprises through a you know public unit trust as it then was. And she said, come and join me. And so I, I went and joined and learned the whole world of green and sustainable finance and the role of the city of London in, in funding a sustainable future. Uh, so roll on 20 years of doing that, and I learned a lot. I became very concerned about climate change and, and the fossil fuel industry and the growth of the fossil fuel industry and how we could replace it. And that led me to set up the Carbon Tracker Initiative, which is a non-profit financial think tank. Um, and that's what I work on today. It's just been a journey around understanding the role of finance and financial systems and the banking system and the climate crisis. So that's how I spend my time and, and my colleagues. And there's now across the tracker group, there's about 55 of us, mostly ex-city people like me and analysts and people who work to, for BP and companies like that. And we all work together and looking at these issues. Great. Um, and Ollie, your background, um, obviously, we, we work together, definitely more of a comms background. But do you just want to um, intro yourself and talk a bit about Keck CNC's climate transition work? Yeah, thank you, Eleanor. It's really great to be here. Um, so I am Oliver Buckley. I am a senior consultant in Keck CNC's London office. And I focus a lot of my time on the topic of climate transition and working with organisations around the world on how to tell the story of their transition to a low carbon future and how to do so effectively. Great. Well, thanks, Ollie. So could you maybe start by um, telling me a bit about how Keck CNC approaches the climate transition and the advice that we tend to offer our clients from a communications perspective? So effective transition communication strategies are stakeholder-led. Um, the goal of transition communications is to achieve a balance of three key things. Uh, the first is stakeholder expectations. Uh, the second is stakeholder perceptions. And then the third is business reality. Uh, and so that's the way we think about it at KCNC. And to maximize reputation, what we're trying to seek is for a company to get equilibrium for these three things. And through that way, they uh, the company is able to bring their audiences along on their net zero journey with them. 
And we talk quite a lot, Ollie, um, when we think about the climate transition, we, we talk a lot about risks and opportunities for clients across a whole range of sectors. Um, but Mark, I wondered, um, obviously, from a capital markets um, perspective, where do you think the biggest risks and opportunities are for investors that are genuinely committed to a low carbon future? Yeah, so, um, you know, that's not a straightforward question, but I, the way I'm going to think of it like this, we, we've spent the last 200 years building a fossil fuel-based industrial system. Everything we do, construction, cement, steel, transportation, aviation, and shipping, and um, car fleets, they're all based on a fossil fuel system. And because of that, we've built a financial system on top of that that is based on fossil fuels. And yet, over the next decade, we're going to have to cut emissions by about 50% if we have any chance of avoiding one and a half degrees of warming, something we've not seen. We've got the highest concentrations of CO2 for 4 million years. So we've got urgency here. We've got to do it very quickly. Um, so that means dismantling what we've built. And, and just to put this into context, around 25% of the world's equity markets like the stock exchanges of New York and London and so on, are, are linked to the fossil fuel system. And about a half of non-bank corporate bonds, the fixed income market, is linked to the fossil fuel system. So the real question you're asking is, can we dismantle that over the next 10, 15 years and rebuild something completely new? And can we do that? In two, two things. One, disrupting the financial system. And two, stabilizing the climate. Can we do that? That's the question you're asking. I happen to think we can. Currently, we're spending around a trillion dollars a year on building a new clean energy system, but we have to grow that fourfold to, to avoid the worst of uh, climate impacts. Uh, but it's possible. We've got great pipelines of, of terrific projects in solar and wind and battery storage, um, and we've got a lot of opportunity. So, uh, the green economy is is thriving. Companies are being um, built around the hydrogen economy and around energy storage and around new systems for distributing energy. Um, we've got parts of the world that are growing fast, the global south in particular, that is accessing energy, but going straight to renewables and skipping the fossil fuel system. So there's lots of opportunities to make money as we move from an old system, a dying system of based on burning things to a new system, an electrical-based system of, uh, of electrons, where uh, all, the, all the benefits from that, uh, using technology and so on, all the benefits of that are there for investors really to see the next decade as, uh, as a decade of opportunity. And Ollie, where do you think the risks and opportunities from a commerce perspective are that will come from that dismantling of the financial system that Marx just talked about and the transition to a green economy? What, what will that mean for businesses and, and I guess their reputation? Yeah, well, we, the way we think about it is that the transition to net zero could be the biggest economic transformation in history. So there's a, there's a lot of riding on this, and um, what's been what's been good to see is that there are lots of companies, lots and lots of companies that um, have made these net zero commitments, and some real real pioneers. You know, if we think back to you know ten fifteen years ago, you, we saw Unilever being a real pioneer in this space, um, and now. 
you, know, you look across all sectors and their the commitment to companies changing and, and, and shifting their strategies to, to make net zero happen is really impressive. So that is a that is a, a tick in the box. But now what we what we're starting to see, and this also comes back to the the big momentum that came from COP26 at the end of last year, is that now what we need to see is companies delivering on what they've said. Uh, and that will be that will be the real test of the next few years because a lot of uh, a lot of net zero commitments are uh, they are projections and uh, it's often uh, it's often not clear how organizations are going to achieve those ambitions so communications the role of communications is really to help the companies tell their story and a key factor a key factor in success for these companies will be authenticity and that doesn't mean uh, that doesn't mean saying uh, you know we're going to achieve this and we're we're, we're exactly on track and we're doing everything we said we would. It's about being clear with your stakeholders about what's going well and what might not, not be going so well. Uh, and those, uh, particularly CEOs and, and senior level executives who are being honest and open about, look, we're, this is a really complex topic. Here's our strategy. And there might be a few bumps in the road and we need to, we need to run with that. I think those are the ones that actually come across, that come across really well. But it's about, it's about taking your, your audiences with you on your journey because it's a very complex topic. It's, it's, there are so many stakeholders that, that a company needs to think of uh, and it's not black and white. So uh, the role of communications and, and what our work does is to help companies tell those stories and to try to demonstrate this authenticity. And what do you think about um, some of the commitments that businesses um, have made, Mark? Are you sceptical? Do you, do you think there is that authenticity that Ollie was talking about? Or do you think actually often there can be a dissonance between business reality and what companies are saying about their, their net zero ambitions? Yeah, okay. Well, um, here I'm going to have to say things as I see it. So if we break the economy down into three parts. You've got prime primary part of the economy, producing things, extracting things. Uh, secondary, which is processing and manufacturing. Then the tertiary economy, which is you know services and information and technology and so on. In the energy transition, we're going to have to disrupt not just primary production, for example, extracting coal and oil and gas. We're going to have to disrupt the processing, the manufacturing side. And, and many... Um, sectors, cement and shipping and aviation are three, and steel is also a clear one, are going to face huge challenges getting off of fossil fuels. I mean, we've got some technologies, um, ammonia and shipping, hydrogen and so on, that can replace fossil fuels, but we're going to have to really struggle. So when you hear claims from companies about decarbonization or, or reducing emissions, what they're struggling with is how do they get off the core resource that they're using uh, which could be a fossil fuel, how do they get off of that into this low-carbon future? And sometimes you hear claims which are just not credible. Now, the real problem is in, that, the, 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 is in the extractive economy. In the new energy system, I think that once we've built a, a renewable energy system, wind and solar and battery storage, you are um, 
you've just essentially just got a, a, a system based on a stock, a physical, a physical power generating system, but you're not going to have the flows that come in uh, because your flows that support your energy system are going to be free. So the wind and the solar is essentially free. No one's charging you for sunshine and wind. And so the costs of energy are going to drop. The benefits to the consumers are, re- are clear. It's going to be a terrific new energy system. Under the current system, you've got so much money being made by the oil and gas sector where you've got limited sellers, multiple buyers. They've got very powerful monopoly controls in some markets over over consumers. And we're seeing that now in the UK, you know, the crisis that we've got over energy, um, that we're dependent on energy imports and gas in particular. Um, And so you've got a lot of vested interests. And what we're seeing at Carbon Tracker, and if you go to carbontracker.org and read our absolute impact report, you'll see particularly the oil and gas companies making claims to net zero to being decarbonization, which essentially uh, incomplete and not based on any reality. They're saying we'll avoid uh, or we'll reduce emissions by using carbon capture and storage. But by the way, we're not doing any carbon capture and storage. Or, or they'll say we're reducing our emissions density whilst doubling production of oil and gas. So you've got the incumbents of the fossil fuel system trying to defend an old energy system using the internal combustion engine where we, when we're in the midst of a extraordinary clean energy revolution where electrons are beating um, an old system which is which is based on molecules of oil and gas and coal and it's going to lose that technology battle and, and renewables will win and and so much of the economy and so much wealth and power is concentrated in the hands of keeping things as they are it's inevitable that companies make claims which aren't true um, and we've seen, you know, oil, the oil and gas sector being taken taken by the Advertising Standards Authority for saying things which aren't true. Gas is not green. It's a fossil fuel. Um, things like that happening. Um, but, of course, you know, you could say, well, let's be a little bit more forgiving because we're going through the transition. Of course, people want to do the right thing and they're going to say things which aren't accurate. Um, I think there's a lot of goodwill there. But when it basically boils down to, it money doesn't just talk it shouts and right now the fossil fuel industry industry and the money interests of that are shouting loudly to say continue with what we're doing that creates a major problem for not just business and society for the whole of the planet Mm. so do you think the real challenge then is is companies finding the right investors that are convinced that the, the shift needs to happen or yeah, I no, that's a very good point. And and there are two alliances that we're involved in at Carbon Tracker. One is called GFANS, the Global Finance Alliance for Net Zero, which is this $130 trillion coalition committed to net zero. And the other is is a $60 trillion coalition called Climate Action 100, taking on the world's top 100 or 200 polluters. There you've got institutional investors like BlackRock and State Street and pension funds all using their voice as a shareholder, using their influence with boards to try and get net zero strategies put in place. Um, so you've got the willingness. And, and what companies should be doing is looking to find, if they're publicly traded, looking to find shareholders that support that transition. Try and find the support of your key shareholders for your transition plan. And I'm afraid for the oil and gas sector, that means finding investors that will support 
not just a managed decline, but an exit, um, an exit from the industry. And um, I, I, uh, I don't think we're quite there yet. I think some people in finance don't want things to change because they're making a lot of money at the moment. But they ultimately realize that, you know, with a decade or so left, left to make a fundamental change, that we can't kick the can down the road. And we've actually got to deal with this problem now. And we've got to start to find new ways of talking between whether it's workers and communities or customers or, or talking particularly, as I see it, shareholders and, and, and company boards about getting this right. Mm. And, and beyond um, oil and gas um, and that industry, are there any other sectors where you think that progress isn't happening fast enough? Um, well, um, I mean, aviation has to be the, the obvious one. We do, we're hearing a lot about biofuels as an aviation fuel. We've, we're even hearing a lot more now than ever before about electrification for short haul flights. Um, that, that's an area that clearly has a challenge. And the same with, you know, the, 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 the somewhat squealing from the steel industry. Well, it is really because of the huge cost they're facing of, of decarbonizing. Um, but, you know, there are sectors which have moved forward very rapidly, and we see this with the work of Climate Action 100, is the automobile sector. You know, who thought 10 years ago that the whole, not the whole of the sector, but big parts of the sector, car manufacturers, would say, right, we're going to stop manufacturing the internal combustion engine and we're going to design in a whole new fleet of electric vehicles. In comes a new entrant, Tesla, that's disrupted the whole of the automobile market. And instead of doubling down and saying we're sticking with the internal combustion engine and, and the petrol engine, um, many of them have said, okay, we're going to compete with Tesla. We're going to build and we're going to build an electrical a fleet of vehicles. So today, you know, the joke is if you want an electric car, you can't get one because so many people are que queuing up to buy them. And 30% of new car sales in China are electric. 70% of new car sales in, in Norway are electric. Right now in the UK, um, we're doubling, tripling electric vehicle sales in just the last year. Um, and there's a sector that's made that transformation. And so can other sectors, can we do the same with shipping? Can we decarbonize shipping? Can we decarbonize aviation? Not can we decarbonize um, heavy transport like lorries? Can we do that? That's the challenge for the next decade. I think we can find answers to those questions, but it's not going to be easy. Mm. I think in some cases as well, the technologies haven't yet been invented for things like sh the shipping industry and the maritime sector. So, yeah. Um, that's a good, good point, Ollie. Um, are there any thoughts there about that you had about kind of a com from the comms angle? Where do you think um, sectors are are doing a really good job of bringing people on the journey with them, bringing shareholders and investors on side? Yeah. Um, and where do you think maybe others uh, have a bit more work to do? Yeah, well, I think the car industry is a really, uh, a really pertinent one, and and from personal experience, having tried to buy a, an electric car over the past couple of months and being told there's a 12 month waiting list, um, uh, I can I can vouch for that personally. And the the reason the car industry is very interesting and it's it's similar in, o in other industries, but the, the, the car one is quite good because. Um, you know, many many of us, many of our listeners are, are consumers of, of cars, is because um, there 
these are companies that are not only voluntarily changing, changing their business model from petrol to electric, uh, but also in many cases, they're being forced to. Legislation is coming in and saying, by a certain date, be it 2035 or, or, or whenever, you are not allowed to sell um, a certain type of car anymore. And this is this is a this is an example of policy being being actually very clear and what businesses crave is having clear policy, whether they like it or not. At least they understand it. So you've got these companies going through these changes, and and 2035 is a key date in the automobile sector. But what you also have to remember from a comms point of view is, especially for these big companies, is that they've probably probably got huge swathes of their workforce who are absolute experts in the combustion engine or in other sectors. They might be absolute, have 50 years, decades of experience in in what a company used to do, but is now shifting away from. And the company isn't ending its business tomorrow. It still wants these people. It still needs to keep these people motivated. And we find that talent communications is a real key area in this because you've got big parts of your business that you need to, you know, they're still coming to work. They're still doing their job. The business is still creating these products, but you need to keep them engaged in the business. They're part of the transition as well. Um, so it's it's ensuring that uh, legacy employees and legacy parts of the business are still part of, uh, still feel part of the business, feel part of the transition, while at the same time, the company at very senior levels are being able to tell their story of where they're going to. Um, and, uh, you know, it, 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 it's a maturing place. It's a maturing, climate transition is a maturing topic. It used to be that, you could talk about net zero and and the media landscape, for example, may um, may not uh, be fully up to speed with with the topics. But now, what we're seeing, particularly in the media, is very very switched on journalists. Other audiences very very switched on regulators very very switched on. So companies need to be even more switched on with what they're saying, what they're committing to, and how they're explaining what they're doing. Mm. And something, talking of um, the media and journalists, something that's um, definitely been high on the news agenda for the last 12 months or so, and that kind of bridges the gap between um, your areas of expertise, so the investor landscape and then the, the comms landscape as well, um, is a real rise in kind of coverage of legal cases against the fossil fuel industry and, and other polluters. So I think it's something like 13 cases that have been filed against companies that emit um, high levels of carbon into the atmosphere in the, in the last year or so and, and many of those cases are focused or aimed to to tackle greenwashing so um do you have thoughts on what this kind of legal action means um both for investors and obviously for businesses and the way they're talking about their their net zero journey yeah um well the legal threat is 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 quite real as we've seen from Shell being in the court in the Dutch courts over their net zero targets, um, it, it's it's essentially the courts are going to have to decide: are companies responsible for global warming, and and are the fossil fuel companies? And there's there's some great work done by uh, a professor in University of Minnesota called Rick Heady um, on the carbon majors, where he's found that. There's something like 70% of the atmospheric CO2 
concentrations have increased over the last 100 years are down to less than 100 companies. And so you can name the companies. And what that does is say, look, this CO2 in the atmosphere is down to the products from, from X, Y, and Z companies, companies like Exxon and so on. It's now we have to see whether the, the courts, um, it's not whether they should agree or not, because I think it's just facts. It's whether the, it's actionable. Ought they to have known? When did they know? Do we do something about it? So it's, it's a very clear um, threat. But the biggest threat that these companies face is not whether they're going to lose in court. That's to be seen. But it's whether they lose their public license to operate. Um, just this week, the University of Cambridge is is meeting to decide whether it rejects academic funding from the fossil fuel industry. And it's the same week that a number of universities in the United Kingdom have, um, have are, are campaigning or have stopped fossil fuel companies from attending um, student recruitment drives. And, and what that is symptomatic of is a loss of confidence by young people, by students in, in a sector, an industry that they see as directly responsible for the climate crisis. It's not just users of fossil fuels that are responsible here. It's actually the producers who ought to have known and have known, certainly for the last couple of decades. So it's, it's that really. It's, the, it's your reputation. Companies' reputation is what is in the, the court of public opinion. And that, and that actually is far more impactful than whether or not there is one day going to be a court case that, that makes you legally liable. Which I think is where you know that's where we step in, and that's where uh, the role of communications is is really important. Because coming back to the point I made before, I mean, first first of all, the foundations of any organisation is having a clear net zero strategy. It's clear, transparent, uh, can be backed with, um, with with clear data. Uh, and if a company has that, then uh, lit, lit, you know these litigation cases. You know, we are likely to see more of these, and then it's up to companies to explain how they are still committed to their net zero transition, even while they are going through what might be difficult uh, legal cases. Um, that you know they still need to develop and tell their net zero stories when policy environments are uncertain, uh, and so. Scrutiny of net zero plans is really high, and companies they need to substantiate the, the claims that they make and. Um, going back to to these litigation cases, there's a story earlier in the year of a farmer in Peru who is uh, trying to sue a, a large German energy company, saying that the, um, the 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 emissions from that company ultimately are contributing to to damage to to his local environment in the mountains up in Peru. Uh, and this is actually a little. Town. It's a little village that, that I've, I've visited before. I knew about before I knew about this. But it's a beautiful part of the world. And what this means is that there are these new, uh, so, so, and this person trying trying to get compensation um, from the energy company. Um, and so what we're seeing is just a new area of risk and a new area of new areas of issues management that these companies just wouldn't have had to deal with before. But they need to deal with it, and and it, it's part of uh, it's part of this whole topic. Uh, and again, just to come back to what I said earlier, this isn't easy. It's really complex. 
Um, there are a lot of different audiences involved. And for companies, they need to try to manage all of the expectations and perceptions that their stakeholders are having with the business reality. And it's really, really complicated. And that's what we try to help them with. I wanted to um, ask a speculative question as well. So looking forward to COP27, if you had to both look into your crystal balls, kind of what do you think the main themes coming out of COP this year will be? And actually, do you think COP generally uh, has much of an impact or, you know, is it more a case again of um, words speaking louder than actions and it really does need to be the other way around? Um. I, I've been to I've been to a good number of cops actually, and I'm going to be I'm going to be the Egyptian one for a couple of weeks and doing events and meeting people and speaking and so on. And um, there's a there's a fundamental problem with which we have to talk about with with the cop process, and that it's it's a it's an emissions reduction treaty. So what governments do is they talk to each other about how they're going to cut emissions, and yet. The climate crisis, the problem is a fundamental one of burning fossil fuels. The problem we have with climate is that we burn fossil fuels in the energy system. And so up until last year, fossil fuels aren't mentioned anywhere in any of the climate discussions or the treaties. Last year, for the first time, there was a phrase in the final communique of, of phasing down coal. There was going to be phasing out coal, but that was lobbied out on the phrase phasing down. So you've got a whole political process that is trying to deal with climate, but without mentioning fossil fuels. It's a bit like talking, having a conference to talk about lung cancer where you're not allowed to talk about cigarettes. It's utterly bizarre. And do I see that changing? And, I, and unfortunately not. I was part of a call with some people from the UN just this week, and I was talking about some of the work that Carbon Tracker will be doing around fossil fuels, and they said, "Oh, you don't want to upset the you don't want to upset the hosts by talking about fossil fuels, because so many countries in the Middle East and uh, are dependent on fossil fuels, and so many countries in Africa want to develop their fossil fuels. It would just be too upsetting to bring this into the discussion. You know, I mean, I laugh because, of course, that's what people have been saying for the last twenty years at the COP. Oh, don't talk about fossil fuels; it's too difficult." Um, and that's so, so I'm where does that mean I have any grounds for optimism or am I entirely pessimistic? Well, last year at the COP uh, was the launch of something called BOGA, the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, which is where a dozen countries, including from the UK, Wales, but includes countries like Denmark and Sweden and so on, announced that they would permanently give up oil and gas exploration rights. And um, I was really, that was really important initiative. And, and I'm part of an initiative called the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, fossilfueltreaty.org, which is an attempt to get countries talking to each other about giving up production of fossil fuels to make sure that we don't take supply over 1.5 degrees. So with 10 years of carbon budget left, questions who gets to produce and where and for what purposes and that's the politics we should be discussing. But that's not what we're going to talk about at the COP. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about emissions cuts. And, and what you'll see, unfortunately, in the next decade is deep frustration from civil society, from scientists, um, from the world at large, saying we've got a process that doesn't work. We're not talking about what we need to talk about. Um, and let's hope maybe the, the, the COP process can pivot 
and really talk about the real issues, which is why we're still using fossil fuels when we've got cheap renewables. That's what we sh- the COP should be talking about, is that is a huge shift to renewables. Um, but that's not what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about is is are we going to have another few billion for, for, for climate? Loss and damage might come up from the global south, quite rightly. Um, but I don't think that's going to progress because it's not in the interests of the people who cause the problem to pay compensation for the problem. So a lot of tricky things. And from from my side, yeah, COP is, I mean, we had brilliant, brilliant mo- momentum from COP, from COP26 last year. Uh, and I think I, I've decided that I'm going to be cautiously optimistic about about COP twenty seven. I mean, it's been such a uh, it's been such a tough year for everyone for so many reasons, be it war or be it inflation or be it cost of living or uh, trying to trying to come back from COVID. And then, meanwhile, we're trying to do you know the world is trying to go through one of the biggest shifts in its history to uh, to to move to to, to net zero. So. Uh, I've decided that I'm going to be cautiously optimistic about uh, about COP27 and that, that this momentum will maintain. Uh, and from a from a communications point of view, you know, we we um, just a, a piece of work I was I was uh, doing last week on a media landscape. Our research on the media landscape, time and again, shows that trying to get media coverage during the periods of COP and these big policy, these big political moments. It's really hard to get because it's such a busy, such a busy place. There's so many announcements, but that of course viewership is so much higher than normal. So uh, in some respects, what we see is is companies putting a lot of um, a lot of commitment behind their communications around the COP time, uh, and and that's because you've got such a cap. That's because you've got such a captive audience. Um, but uh, as ever. Companies need to be communicating throughout the year and on an ongoing basis, and not just around these these key moments. So to round us off, um, I wanted to ask a question. Thinking 10 years into the future, what will the world look like? Great. Well, I'm hugely optimistic. I think what we'll have seen in t- over 10 years is we will have replaced the fossil fuel system, certainly for, for power, for heating, for transportation with um, renewables and clean energy and, electri- and electrical vehicles and so on. And we will have moved from a high-cost fossil fuel system, which we've got today, look at all the expensive gas we're having to import, to a very low-cost system where energy is essentially, once we've built it, it's essentially free because of sunlight and, and wind and and we've found new and novel ways to store energy. And then it's game on to try and transform the manufacturing system to decarbonize construction and 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 uh, steel and 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 so on and and that I think is achievable because we we we've got things like hydrogen we've got innovative technologies so I'm hugely optimistic I think we can do it the real question is do we have the political will to put in place the incentives the direction it's insane that we're building houses today without solar and without battery storage and without connections to um, um, uh, uh, for electric cars, and we're gonna, we we build these houses, then we have to retrofit them almost immediately to put solar on the roofs and batteries in the basement and so on. 
which is ridiculous. We, that's just policy not working. So we've got to get policy working and the right incentives. Um, and then I think we're going to have a, a brave new green world. I actually believe it. I actually genuinely believe it. Good. Ollie, I challenge you to match that optimism. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's reassuring, both reassuring and, and refreshing to, to hear such a, such a viewpoint. And uh, I mean, this is, another, this is another area where I am also cautiously optimistic um, because I think, so, I think there will be a lot of um, great developments over the next 10 years, uh, not least in us all driving electric vehicles instead of uh, instead of petrol ones, uh, and I think uh, I think there'll a big change will be in policy. Um, there is uh, there is a, a lot of uh, flip flopping from f- from governments converting words into action. So I think that will be substantially different in an improved way. And then also, I think from the investment side, I think the investment and uh, advances we're going to see, particularly in the hard-to-abate sectors, so for example, cement and steel, I think right now we're really starting to see investment in these areas really shift up. These huge high-risk um, um, areas which which are still going through uh, uh, you know, significant areas of, of research and development. But these these really these hard to obey sectors, I think we're going to see some some major changes for the for the good. So that is my cautiously optimistic view to ten years ahead. And also I think with the uh, more um, environmentally conscious the younger generation coming through and taking those positions of responsibility at these companies. Uh, I think the the license to operate and the expectations around companies will change again then. So we'll have to we'll have to talk at that point again and um, see whether whether our, our predictions were correct. Yes. See you both in ten years, I guess, for another another episode. Thank you so much um, for your time, both. Um, Thank you. If you want to listen to more episodes of this podcast, Global Thinking, then please do visit our website www.kexcnc.com. Thank you very much for listening and see you soon.